welcome to Property Matters here on Dublin South FM. You can contact the show on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn at iPropertyRadio or by email at hello at iPropertyRadio.com. Your host for today is Brian Fox and myself, Carol Tallon. First up today, I'm joined by Pat David, CEO of iPad. Pat, you're very welcome back to the show. It has been a couple of months since we spoke last and as always, the property market keeps changing. How have you been? Thank you, Carol. And indeed, it has been a couple of months since we spoke and probably sometime during uh, COVID when nobody was out and about. But uh, things have changed, obviously, considerably. And uh, even from today, things have changed even more. And comes the 22nd of uh, October and things will change an awful lot more again. But we're after going through some very hairy times, I would say, to say the least, uh, when agents were obviously not uh, viewing properties and people were buying properties on with the viewing online and uh, uh, all that type of thing so that uh, now things have moved on a little bit and now at least we're able to view and we're, we're looking at at the moment of changing the protocol to allow uh, more people to view properties and um, so that that will be changed hopefully this week actually and uh, it will allow instead of one grouping to view property uh, what the agent feels is safe to view property uh, taking into consideration the guidelines of the HSE and the government as well so that uh, it's a uh, it's certainly different um, and different for many members, obviously, because a lot of people were behind the behind the, the closed doors and uh, very little communicado with people, certainly from meeting them, maybe to speak to them on the telephone or by Internet or something. Yes, but very little meeting of people. And uh, like, obviously, those that type of thing had an effect, especially in auctioneers, because auctioneers is a very personal business and it's person to person all the time. And agents are used to going out and meeting people on an ongoing basis and speaking to them one to the other. Uh, whereas now you weren't able to do that. And, you know, so it's uh, it's a completely different way of doing business business um, as opposed to where we were, Carol. So I suppose. Yeah. One thing we've seen in the marketplace is that estate agents, like every other business, you know, they they were forced to adapt. They had to adapt. They did a brilliant job, you know, more so than maybe we saw agents trying to adapt, you know, during the crash when things changed in a different type of a way. During COVID, um, the the adoption of technology, the willingness to try new things, the, you know, the innovative nature, forget about technology, the innovative nature of most self-employed um, people, including estate agents, really came to the fore over COVID. So, COVID. So I was really impressed, actually, with the way estate agents did rise to the challenge. And I think consumers acknowledged it. I think they appreciated it. And if anything, I think this has strengthened the relationship of trust between estate agents and consumers. But from IPAF's perspective, you support um, members right across the country. How did the support that that IPAV as an organization offer their members? How how did that change over COVID? What kind of supports were needed? Well, I suppose the first supports that were needed really was to assure people that this wasn't going to be the end of the line. A lot of people thought this was sort of the end of uh, the auctioneer and the valuer and the sale of houses. And of course, as every as these things all sort of happen, you know, everybody is fearful, like for not alone. Uh, this time, you know, it's slightly different than the crash because they were fearful for their own lives even, which, you know, was a was a completely different added ingredient, which we all could have well done without. But unfortunately, that's COVID. Um, so that I suppose it's a it's a lot. It's a lot. A lot of people like would be used to coming to CPD events and coming to seminar events with IPAV and going to AGMs and Christmas lunches and that type of thing, which automatically just stopped. So the first actual interaction 
we've had with people was our book launch for our 50th year book about uh, three weeks ago down in Limerick. And our next one is going to be our AGM, which is on actually next Saturday. But uh, even that AGM, we can only have 50 people at it inside. And uh, we are going to have a link as well uh, by Zoom. So some people can join by Zoom as well, if they so wish. Uh, but all of that sort of thing that it, that they were able to do and, and meet with uh, IPAV was gone so that uh, people were then uh, meeting on the telephone and my staff were in and out of the office all the time with fantastic staff and they weren't sort of um when when we locked down and had to lock down uh, they weren't there but after that the minute we could open and had to get back into the office there was somebody that was nearly in the office all of the time so the office nearly manned all the time and even if it wasn't uh, the girls and the boys were actually taking out the phones with them etc and they were the same as the agents were doing you know the same thing that at least when somebody called there was somebody at the other end of the line so that the advice I suppose at that particular stage changed because there was a whole advice on on how properties could be viewed and what you can do inside the protocols and what you can do with PSRA uh, the PSRA license renewals like so all of that sort of thing was still happening so the advice was still needed but the services I suppose that we would have known you know the interaction between members uh, all stopped so that like that was a big thing for IPAB as well we had to put all of these uh, online we had to make the different uh, uh, CPD hours and make the different CPD films and broadcasts for this and then do the uh, do obviously some ones were live as well and did them online so that we had a big learning curve as well because we weren't obviously doing that prior to that as a matter of fact our constitution didn't allow us to have meetings or things online so we had to have an EGM in the middle of our of our uh, of our away from the people as well away from our members and we had an AGM last um, in March or April and uh, we had to get different things approved to that EGM to allow us even to meet online but we did other things as well at that EGM but uh, it's just amazing when you when you start doing these things you know that there are there are little blockages in the way that you have to get round about and get get over and get sorted. But um, overall, I'd say a lot of members have a good experience through COVID with IPAV. Uh, at least we certainly feel they do and they have been telling us about it as well. So I think that a lot of members have been uh, happy with the performance of IPAV and the advice given by IPAV and the advice of us uh, on their behalf to government and the lobbying of IPAV to government, which again was very, very important. But in COVID, as you know, Carl, it's very difficult who to lobby because nobody seems to have the power to do anything. Well, the Taoiseach's office seems to be the end of the road. But like even at that, you, you don't actually know even a, a lot of times when announcements are being made, even even if they were being made, we didn't know whether we were included or not included, as lots of other uh, industries were as well. It wasn't just us. But uh, so it was a very sort of a a very worrying and, and, and agitated time, I'd say, for many, many people, including ourselves, because you do your best and then you find that you're not mentioned in the in 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 the in the protocols and different things don't happen the way you thought they would happen. And you know, so it's slightly different. But I'd say overall, I'd say that the members had a good experience through COVID. Well that's that's good to hear. You know, it's funny you talk about lobbying because lobbying has such a poor reputation in Ireland. And in fact, um, the media in the last week or so certainly wouldn't endear anybody towards lobbying. However, I, I think over COVID, it was the one time where I heard lots of different businesses talk about the need for lobbying, maybe that hadn't before. So, you know, I remember having a conversation with my hairdresser when she talked about how poor their sector had lobbied. And yeah. previously, I'm willing to, to bet that, you know, she wouldn't have had a huge interest in lobbying or, or would have even you know, thought that there was a great need for it. And it was amazing when we saw these protocols shift and suddenly professions were being named. This is where you could see 
what lobbying was intended to do, that representative voice, you know, because it's gotten hijacked in some way over the last number of decades, certainly not just in Ireland, it's a global problem. But I think this this past experience um, really showed that it is about an industry coming together, speaking with one voice. And that's that's what falls under the category of lobbying. But we saw that's where I, I think it really came into its power over COVID. And not only that, but actually it got the industry understanding the importance of rowing together. You know, it, it became a bit of a cliche to say we're all in this together, but actually that was the only way any sector was able to thrive. So, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a really fair one. And um, Pat, you glossed over something very important there in, in a very offhand sort of way. You mentioned the book launch for IPAV. I thought yes. it was quite a big occasion at celebrating. Yeah, it was, a, it was a big occasion. And um, just on the lobbying, um, just, I'm just going to go back to one thing on it. It's very important from the lobbying point of view. A lot of lobbying was done in secret, I think, uh, up to up to very probably a few years ago, which is probably very dangerous. And it causes a lot of friction with people because people don't know. And um, IPEF have nothing to be hiding about their lobbyists. We we employ lobbyists all of the time to look at different things for us and lead your sellers pack and different things like that. And the lobbyists have all these... Um, I suppose they had the contacts and you would expect them to have the contacts of government departments and things like that, where I can't be looking for them or CEOs in different organisations can't be looking for them. So you look for them for this advice. But now with the lobbying act and the lobbying returns that you have to make every every three months, and um, that, has, I suppose, has put some sort of light in the lobbying. But at the same time, like, you know, I think if lobbying is done up front, because none of us should be afraid to say that we're lobbying for behalf of our members, that's what we're there for. So, like, we should be we shouldn't be afraid to say it. And we do it. And I think if we if we get something from it that we want to result, I think it's very, very good. But yes, our book was written over uh, 50 years uh, uh, from the start of IPAV when IPAV was started by 10 individuals in Barry's Hotel in Dublin in 1971. And uh, from that, it has grown to today to 1500 members uh, through about 35 or 36 different presidents. Um, and the 50th president this year is Tom Cross. And indeed, you met Tom and he was saying to you, slagging you, or you were slagging him, whatever the case may be, but he being the virtual president. And uh, yes, I suppose he will be known as the virtual president. But at the same time, uh, Tom is way above that because he got he still got out and about there with people and very, very helpful and very good president. But it's amazing over the years, you know, when you start writing this book, a lot of people, I suppose, a lot of a lot of institutes and professional bodies probably don't maybe maybe count their history and write uh, their 50th year book or some of them maybe aren't 50 years old, etc. But I have where and we spent about two and a half years writing this book. Uh, Andrew Hughes, the historian, wrote it for us in the end, and he wrote it on the basis of all the presidents and the different presidents that started out. And then apart from that, then all of the different things that happened in the property market that I have had a handle on um, during the years. So it's it's a lovely book. It's um, I'll get you a copy of it, actually. It's a hundred and about 160 page book, but it's beautiful. You know, I look forward to reading it because actually I think there have been so many changes in in the property ecosystem over the last um, over the last 50 years. And. Uh, by the way, when, when I refer to Tom as a virtual president, I mean, it's a compliment. You know, I, I, I'm all about yeah. uh, promoting the virtual world. But as I recall, it wasn't. this is Tom's second presidency, isn't it? It is Tom's second presidency. Yeah, he was president about 10 years ago as well. Actually, no, about 20 years ago, he was president. 20 years ago. So and, he's uh, the right man for these, yeah. for these times. 
Yeah, he was the right man. And it just it turned out like that. He's the 50th president, which, again, is history itself. You know, uh, we're in the uh, we're in the, the, the 50th year this year. Uh, new president, 51st president will be coming in. Paul McCourtney will be coming in next Saturday. Um, but it's amazing when you go looking at the history, though, like and you really see I've been involved with IPAP since 1983, which was only 12 years after its birth. But at the same time, uh, a lot of things have happened, like we'd say, even in the start of those years, the people that were involved and even difficult to get some of them and different things, you know, like that. But 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 overall, it's very interesting seeing the history come together and putting it together. And we going through photographs and everything like, you know, it's a, writing a book and putting it all together is a huge job. And apart from the person that writes it, you know, you need a whole team behind you putting all the stuff into it and getting it all to look right and to get all the pictures in in the right places and and the right pictures as well. So, like, you know, it's a, it's a it was a job for myself and Genevieve McGurk in her office. And I'll tell you now, it was a pretty, it was a, a time stake now on and off, you know, that took a lot of time to get things right. But then you have all the presidents that have to agree with it, you know, as well. And yeah, so it's, not, it's not just, it's not just a big job. It's a big responsibility. You know, again, who, who records history has, has yeah. their say. And, you know, th- there's been so many different accounts of property from different, pro- from different um, perspectives over the last number of decades and like 50 years sounds like a long time but then you look at the government housing for all plan which is supposed to last 10 years mm. so that's like one fifth of that length of time and yet um what is what is expected you know maybe the changes that happened probably organically in some ways over the last 50 years we're trying to undo a certain amount of those over the next 10 years through housing for all so um Pat, how have your members received Housing for All? Um, I think IPAV in general have have welcomed Housing for All because it's good to have a plan and the government having a plan. Uh, I think it's a a long-term plan. It's a set of uh, proposals that a government would like to see happening and we need to work now to make them happen but to go with any plan I think you need a plan of action which is a short-term plan and a long-term plan. Uh, I think that the Minister uh, could put together a short-term plan the things that he wants to happen uh, in a very short amount of time and working towards things that he wants to happen in a short amount of time and it's fine saying we're going to build 300,000 houses in 10 years um, but you know, it, this year is what we're talking about. We'd say, for instance, at the moment, we'll be lucky if we build 20,000 houses, probably. Uh, so, like, you know, a continuation of into next year, like, you know, there should be sort of some sort of a guarantee there of some description put together uh, that we can maybe some way guarantee that these number of houses will be built. But but there isn't really, like, you know, so it's uh, it's good to have the plan. There are a lot of other things in it besides house building. There's a lot of money going into the property market, you know, which is going to be good and to support property and to support property, social social housing, as well as uh, private housing. So that, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, um, there's, there's a lot of finance there. So hopefully putting all that money into it is going to make sure that something comes out at the end of the day. But needless to say, the property market is going to change over 10 years as well. Like, you know, populations are going to change. There's going to be more need. There's going to be more housing required. There's going to be different types of housing required. So that I suppose in the longer term, it's difficult to put together a plan that's going to suit everybody over that term. So it has to be subject to change and different things, which probably will, depending on ministers for housing this there, you know, um, I don't know how long the current minister will be there, but like, you know, if a government changes, the chances are it's going to, he, he might need to be there for the next term, actually, even when the new Taoiseach comes in. I don't know if the, what way the, the, the bodies will change at that particular time, you know, the departments will change. Um, but it's important that, that somebody, now that we have the plan that, you know, has continued on for the term, regardless of the fact of who's in power, but the way a lot of the other parties looked at it, you would seem to think that if there's a change of government or something, the, the plan will be out the window and there'll be a new plan. So it's a, 
it's uh, it's it's interesting, but like you know, over the term, we certainly need the property market needs this plan and it needs money to be spent on it and it needs a revamp of the rental market which is the center of all the markets because rental is the place people go to first if they want to whether you're social whether you're private no matter what you are you have to rent if you want to get out of your situation you're in with your with your partner with your mother with your father whatever you want to do you want to get married you want to do whatever like you want to have your own house and the quickest way to get it is to rent and obviously, if people that are in the rental properties at the moment can't move out of it because they can't buy properties or they're acting properties for them to buy, well, then the whole that particular cog is going to come stagnant. And if that becomes stagnant, well, then I think the rest of the market is going to come stagnant with it. Um, so that it's uh, I think that end of things and to get onto that end of things and to get onto that end of the market, I think is a huge uh, it's, a, it's a huge job for government. Now, being be honest about it. Oh, it is. I don't think anybody underestimates the challenge. Um, I, I suppose probably a more immediate concern, because, again, that that's a longer term strategy and, and it's focusing on the delivery of new homes. The more immediate um, challenge I can imagine facing member or your, many of your members will be around the supply of secondhand homes. We, we can see that there are historic lows um, of secondhand homes being listed on the property portals in Ireland. You know, how how are your members interpreting that in the context of the market? Um, there has been a lot of shortage of stock coming on the market and I think that has happened through COVID as well and through fear as well as everything else even though the property market has moved on considerably and prices have moved on from January this year um, but I think even still I think there's a lot of fear out there for people putting their property on the market especially if they want to buy a new property will I be able to buy one uh, even fear of people putting their property on the market like who's going to view it and am I going to be safe when people are viewing and all this type of thing because again we can have all the technology but people still want to view a property I don't actually know if there was if there was if there was one property bought without anybody viewing it during the whole of the COVID. I, people... I, can, I can confirm that that did actually happen because that's a question yeah. I've been asking every single agent. So there have been a handful, but the vast majority viewed yeah. online. We're happy to pay booking deposits online, exactly. but they weren't signing the contracts until they viewed the property. Well, they could even sign the contract and the contract was subject to viewing, which is another thing that the contract was. Um, and obviously everybody would like to have an opportunity to, to look at the property, but people need to look at properties and in people's homes, you know, there was a certain amount of fear there. They were letting people into their homes and, you know, so there was a lot of properties that, and I and I know we're talking about uh, we're probably talking about small numbers here, but when you add up everything, all the different little ingredients here that we're talking about, the people were afraid to put the property in the market, and people, you know, were looking maybe afraid that they wouldn't get another property to sell that type of thing. Uh, when you add up all of these things, you know, it all adds to a situation that there was less property going on the market, mm-hmm. and uh, I think that that right through the COVID until now in in in, in September, I think things have eased a little bit, Carol. Um, being quite honest about it. I think uh, listening to agents throughout the country, I think there is a little bit more properties or some more properties coming on the market uh, for the back end of the year. It seems to be, um, which is which is a good sign. And it's a good sign that people are now in the marketplace and they're, and, they're, and they're out there actually wanting to sell. I think the market has settled down, like a lot of agents would tell you, that it's settled down to a certain degree at the moment, even though there are price increases. But I think that at least now you can put a property in the market. You're not looking for a sky high price for it. You're happy to sell it in the marketplace. And there's people in the marketplace that's happy to buy it. So that I think, you know, that um, it certainly 
we could do with more secondhand properties, I think, for sale. We could do with more new properties for sale, especially in rural Ireland, even though I was looking at a figure recently where the construction of all new homes is only 28% in Dublin and the rest is in the country. Um, but there are many, many towns uh, throughout Ireland and especially throughout the west of Ireland where there are no new homes being built and can't be built and won't be built until such time as the price of secondhand homes gets up to a situation or a level that people can actually go and build housing at. Like you can still buy... Uh, a bungalow probably in most parts of rural Ireland for probably 200, 250,000. Uh, you could buy a three-bedroom semi in lots of counties and you can see from our, our recent price barometer, property price barometer, you could buy them from probably 130, 140, maybe up to 180,000. And like a lot of builders can't build them for that. They want 300,000 to build these houses and they say that's what they need. And builders haven't got a magical wand either that, you know, they can go out tomorrow and just change the price of housing from 300 to 200. It can't be done because the costs are huge as well. Yeah. So that until such time as the price of housing moves on and gets into that frame and gets into that level that people can afford to buy these housing, it's going to be a situation where no new houses will be built in a lot of these areas. Now, there are new houses being built in a lot of the cities, which is good out of Dublin, you know, so there's, 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 um, but a lot of the other rural towns and uh, counties wouldn't have had seen new housing be built in them at all, or maybe a very small scatter of them and a very, very small I'm talking about. Yeah. And, you know, look, it's interesting. We haven't fully learned what the impact of, um, uh, whether it's hybrid work or a manner of remote work is going to do for the towns outside of the main urban areas. So again, you know, the, these are these are interesting times. It'll be, I think it will be very interesting to see what the figures are by the end of the year and see how in the third quarter, in the fourth quarter, the property market, how that reacts once people start to return to the office and similarly in the first quarter of 2022. Um, but for, for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us this week. That was Pat David, CEO of iPad. We'll be back Thank after a quick break. Stay tuned. 93.9 Dublin South FM. Welcome back to Property Matters in Dublin South FM with Carol Town and myself, Brian Fox. You can contact us on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. We're now joined by James Benson of the Construction Industry Federation and the Irish Builders Association. James, you're welcome back to the show. Um, before the summer break, there was a run of housing legislation culminating in, as I have it here, uh, housing for all. What is the reaction or response of your members to the government's new plan to deliver 312,000 new homes by 2030? And do you believe it's credible? Well, I, I do, Brian, and I think while it's ambitious and the numbers are, are definitely ambitious and quite a move away from where we were and what we've seen over the last number of years, um, they, they are achievable. Um, now, it will take all hands on deck and it will take a combination of efforts from all those within the industry on the private and public side um, through various models or contracts or license agreements, but it is achievable. I think it's important maybe to set the context of where we're coming from as well, if we're going to look at where we need to get to. So if we look at delivery for 2020, we would still expect and hope to deliver somewhere in the region of 20,000 homes this year. Now, I think that's important to reflect on that, given that we were shut down for almost three months of, of this year, and it's a quarter of the year. Um, so to achieve that, I think it shows the resilience and the capacity within the sector to deliver. Um, I think that bodes well for what will come and what will come down the line. Now, I think the market was definitely seeing pent up demand um, and there, there's no there's no secrets in that. That has come as a result of a number of factors, but very much so from the under delivery in homes over the last number of years. And I think that needs to be said. We would estimate we could have the, the, the sector, society, the country probably under deliver somewhere in the region of 75,000 homes 
even in the last three to four years, just on the needs and demands that the country would have had. We've seen a, a change in dynamic. That's important as well. You know, maybe 10 years ago, your average first time buyer would have been in their early 20s. They could have been buying an apartment um, as their first their first venture onto their property ladder. Now we're seeing first home buyers, new home purchasers in their mid 30s uh, and going straight towards the more traditional three and four bed semi-detached homes. Um, that's not to say there isn't an appetite and demand for apartments also. So we were coming from a relatively strong position, strong demand um, and strong ability within the sector to deliver. But there was a need for a plan. Um, I think that the worst plan was to do nothing, to put your head in the sand. And I think the government's plan is ambitious, but as I said, achievable. Uh, what would we see as a result of that? I think we'll see an immediate bounce. Very positively, I think we'll see an immediate bounce, I think, in 2022. I think we'll be straight away looking at maybe 26, 27,000 homes. Um, that's because I would hope that we will have unlocked that cohort that were locked out of the market. You know, those who couldn't get the necessary finance or mortgage in place, um, those who needed a little bit of extra help, the first home scheme, which I suppose people might refer to as the shared equity scheme. That'll be an important element that will unlock that group. That in itself takes pressure off of off other areas. If we can, you, you approve of that that that, that uh, idea? You you would. I mean, despite the controversies out there about it. Well, I think you know. Again, to do nothing isn't a, isn't a solid plan. We we need we do need to do something. Will there be pressure on house prices? I think there's pressures on house prices as we currently stand. You know, we're talking fifteen thousand this year alone on material inflation on your average house. Yeah. The, Society of Chartered Surveyors recently had a paper out and they estimate somewhere in the region of eight to 12,000 added on to the cost of a house because of planning delays and referrals and judicial reviews. We're talking nearly 30,000 there inflation without getting into materials and without getting into delays in planning. That's how, so we're seeing house price inflation anyway. So again, I think to do nothing, the studies in the UK show that it's not directly the shared equity team isn't the only cause of house price inflation. Um, and some studies looked at London and other areas. So I think we're seeing house price inflation now, you know, without those schemes being introduced. If we're going to get into the detail of that, Brian, I think, again, it's an important it's important to look at where is the, the greater level of inflation coming from. And if you look at the new homes, we're seeing over the last 12 months, 2.1% inflation in the last 12 months for new homes. Existing homes, the second-hand market, have jumped 8.6% in the last 12 months. So the overall picture is being distorted, I suppose, and we are seeing a greater level of inflation in the existing. And that's because, you know, just the stock isn't there on both sides, both existing and new. So we're seeing we're seeing pressure on house prices, no doubt. Um, and I think... Just, sorry, just before Carl jumps in, I just want to ask you one question. And um, it's kind of current because... There's a lot of confusion, I think, uh, uh, among people out there, and and, and I think from, from the listeners' point of view, um, there's there's, a, there's there's housing policies from various parties at the moment, as you well know. Um, Ono Brill from Sinn Féin is very prominent. It's got a new book on it about. What's your approach? I mean, how how do you see uh, the political landscape at the moment in in those terms, from the point of view of listeners that are confused about, you know, housing for all and and the various other um, initiatives that they're hearing from from politicians. I think the best thing to do is put a plan forward and then have a robust discussion around that. Again, just to say no to everything isn't a solution. That's not going to deliver any more homes. Put out the plan, put out the, the mechanics of how that plan will work, put out the potential legislation of how it will operate. 
allow robust discussion, allow the feedback from those who will deliver the homes, from the stakeholders involved in that delivery, from the start of the cycle through to conveyancing, let all views be heard, and then take an educated decision on whether a scheme or initiative should be implemented. But again, just to do nothing, we've seen what's happened when we've done nothing in the last number of years. We saw a lack of investment in infrastructure and that over the last 10 years. And now that has led to serious impediments to delivery and constraints that we're seeing. So that option doesn't work. Um, so I'd welcome any initiative. I'd welcome the robust discussion on some of these plans. Um, and I think they're achievable. I think with any plan, they have to be achievable as well. So we could all say we need 50,000 homes a year. That's not realistic or sustainable in the current environment. So looking at getting to 33,000 homes, that's the first step. Sustaining it is the next step, and then we can catch up. Um, but the plan, I think, needs to be, and I think it is focused on enabling the purchaser. We need to see the necessary supports in place for purchasers. One, yeah, that, that, that group that were locked out or couldn't get to the market, we said, I would see some of the supports within this plan assisting them. And again, if you can assist that cohort, it takes pressure off other other areas. So you'll have less numbers on the social list. Um, you'll take pressures off those on the rental side. But the plan looks at private, social, affordable rental. And it needs to look at all those measures because we need to see increased delivery across all those. Again, it's been said, will the private industry have the capacity to deliver on these homes? Um, they will, but they'll need everyone working together. We'll need the same sense of urgency that the private industry has always brought you know, in dealings with getting the planning permissions through. Um, but you will see home builders, you'll see contractors, you'll see different people delivering different developments through different license agreements and contract arrangements. And there's room for everyone here because we do have a lot of ground to make up um, and there's a lot of homes needed. And there's people and families and children out there screaming for homes. And so like I say, it'll take a combination of everyone working together to deliver. Um, James, I think, look, you touched on a number of great points there that I want to talk to you about. Um, as Brian mentioned, shared equity, that's pretty controversial at the moment. You know, you're saying that we need to make it easier and more accessible for people to buy properties, which makes sense. Um, but the central bank, have, are they trying to put the kibosh on shared equity? Well, I don't know if it's the central bank's full place to say whether it should or shouldn't be introduced in. I think it's the government-led initiative. Um, again, let's let's look at the caps. Let's look at potential caps. Let's look at income thresholds. Let's look at what can be done to bridge that gap. At the moment, I think the only thing, no one can say for certain what will happen in 24 months' time. But what we do know, what we can say for certain right now is that if we don't introduce some scheme, we'll continue to have a large group that will be locked out of the market. That's without doubt. And what we do know at the moment is that there is price inflation and pressure on house prices. So, again, I think to do nothing isn't a viable solution. But let's put the caps in place. Let's look at potential thresholds. Look, Let's look at how that state support or that state equity element will be repaid you know, what constraints or what pre-calls come into that. Let's look and discuss that in a meaningful way. Yeah, but there's a couple of different things in that. Like, so just to return to the shared actually for, for a moment, um, it it seems strange for the central bank to come out 10 days after Housing for All is announced to say it wasn't approved. It just seems like the wrong time to to be coming out. Like, should if they have concerns or they've been raised earlier. You know, the second one there, again, back to the central bank comes around... Um, uh, mortgage lending limits, the macro prudential rules. You know, we know that the state itself doesn't abide by them. You know, through their 
local authority mortgages were looking at maybe four and a half times income mm-hmm. levels. So, I mean, do, do your members have a position on that? I mean, because you've got the benefit of understanding what home builders are experiencing from not just the industry, but from consumers right around the country. Mm-hmm. Three and a half times the limit is that is that a bit of an arbitrary figure, or should that be changing based on the region that you're in? Well, I think no one is going to argue for you know on prudent lending or, or you know on on secure debt or debt that was going to put debt repayments that are going to put couples and single single families into into jeopardy or into you know in a difficult situation for repayments over the next number of years. I suppose our own position and the home builders position is they're seeing the direct impact on the ground from people who want to buy homes, they're desperate to find homes and they just, they they find a home that they want, but they can't secure the necessary mortgage. You know, there's always going to be that discussion of whether it should be 3.5 or similar to the UK where you're into the realms of 4.5. You have the loan to value incomes. All those things are, I think, should be up for discussion. And again, we haven't seen real reform or change in the the framework um, or the central bank rules. But one big, big area where we we always see and for from the agents and from potential purchasers that are coming to our members on the ground is where they're going. They just cannot see how they are repaying rents that would be far in excess per month that would be far in excess of what their potential mortgage repayment would be. And they're doing that for three, four, five years. And that's not taken into account in the potential application. So we've said this for years that the rental history, if someone can do it for a sustained period and it's well in excess of what their potential mortgage repayment is, surely they're demonstrating that they have the means and the benefits that go with that you've extra money that the balance surplus gap like being savings or exchequer revenue or go back into the economy i think the benefits for there but we should be open and the central bank and others we would argue should be open to the, to having a robust discussion around that as well yeah you're preaching to the choir about that um on this show you know we've been long saying for the past almost three years that um history needs needs to count um, but one of the important things that we have seen, and, and I'm told by mortgage brokers, actually, that this is being taken into consideration in, in some respects. We just haven't really we haven't really seen how well that's um, reflected in mortgage applications. So maybe at an individual level, maybe it is playing a role, but we're not seeing it, certainly. Um, but one of the things, just while we have you uh, for another few minutes, that I really want to talk about um, you mentioned material, you also uh, material costs and material inflation, and you also talked about pent up demand. Um, the headlines over the last two three months have all focused on um, the the inflation around uh, construction materials. Pent up demand. How do you marry the two? Because at the moment, you know, we've had your colleagues in the CIF talk about some of the issues, you know, particularly pertaining to schools um, and the delivery of fixed price contracts. But for the home builders, how are home builders um, impacted in terms of their current pipeline of work and these um, these cost inflations? You know, how is it impacting on them at the moment? Well, I suppose Carol, we, we we completed a study within our own members um, back in May of this year, and it, it the results were um, concerning. Um, ultimately, they came out and said there was roughly in the region of twelve to fifteen thousand material inflation for your average ninety-five square meter three-bed semi-detached unit. Some somewhere within that region, about twelve to fifteen thousand. We've updated that and we're compiling the results of it now again for September. Um, and it's looking like that's increased by another one to two thousand. So we're again we're up at 15 to 17. 
how our members are impacted by that depends on their point of their point of time within their journey in the development. If they've contracts signed um, with purchasers, it means that they that is coming out of the development figure, the bottom line. It's that 15,000 is expected to be soaked up because the figure is done and agreed. If they're going out looking for funding, it makes it more difficult because if they have a margin, a minimum of 10% margin that will be required from the domestic banks or whatever funding they have there, if you take your average house that could be potentially 300,000, you have a 50 and your, your margin then needs to be 30,000, you have 15,000 increase, your margins drop from 10 to 5%, which means you just won't get the funding. If it's added on to the price of a house, it puts further pressure on those who are trying to get a mortgage and already can't access the market. So unfortunately, depending on your point of contract, it's either expected to be soaked up by the home builder, which can make it difficult for future developments um, and going, you know, funding the plan and then everything that goes along with, or else it's going to be borne by the purchaser and to make it more difficult then for the access to the market. But it makes it very difficult. And I think it's the uncertainty. And, and to go back to your to your previous point um, around the central bank. It's been taken into account and, and the, the, the rental history and it's been taken into account on an individual basis. But, you know, you need educate, you need certainty in, in home building. So we just need certainty. We just need to know what's happening and what's in place. You know, again, mortgage approvals versus mortgage drawdowns. There's a different story depending on what stats you look at. So real information in real time and certainty goes a huge way. Some of the other elements of the, the publication of Housing for All looked at uh, the help to buy in conjunction with the shared equity. And it does very much need to be in conjunction. Currently, the help to buy has only been extended for another year. We need to see that extended for three, four, five years, not just for home builders who need it to secure funding, but to give those confidence in, that will be that they can save. Not They don't just have until 12 months to save the deposit, that they have two to three years to do it. You know, and it doesn't just push. It's just not another knockback. Um, so materials is, is a big issue, but I think one of the earlier questions from Brian Carroll was about, you know, how achievable is, is housing for all? I think it is. And a lot of the supports will support consumers and purchasers and help that affordability issue. But for ourselves, there's a big, I suppose, we are looking at the implementation of the plan. You know, you go, you have to go back to the start starting point for any development, and that's available land and activating the land. So is there enough land available in the country to deliver, whether it be public or private? Is the necessary infrastructure in place to activate that land, to bring it forward, whether it be water or wastewater or roads? There are two big hurdles to overcome before we can even get into the planning process um, and even to talk about why we don't see the high level of commencements that we need because of the viability issues that are out there. Unfortunately, at the moment, we're seeing a large amount of dezoning in a lot of the counties around the country because of the constraints that are in place of the national policies that we need for compact urban growth. And they're very laudable. But we are seeing as a result of that dezoning in a huge amount of counties. Now, if we don't have enough land available and land that is capable of being serviced and bringing forward developments, you well know this as well, Karen, if the services aren't in place, it won't get the planning, or if it doesn't have the potential for the services, it won't get the plan and they can't be brought forward. And we shouldn't have lands that are have the services in place, dezoned at the expense of lands that could be considered in a better position. But if they're not realizable, as in we can't put the services in place because they're either landlocked or infill or whatever the case may be, it's not credible to dezone lands at the expense of other lands that will just never be developed. It can't be just purely about maths and figures and projections. We need to take into account proper land assessment. And that is a real concern. You know, uh, zoning 
infrastructure and planning. There are big concerns at the moment and they're huge impediments. The plan is fully realizable. It can be achieved and home builders will be chomping at the bit to get cracking on this and get going on it. But it always goes back to the starting point. Can we get the certainty into the system? And I'm sorry, very quickly not to labor the point, but what's in the remit of home builders is to build homes and we want to build if you go to most home builders, they will say, by the time we pull a foundation to turn a key in the door, you're talking around 16 weeks. And that's what we can control. And that's in our capacity. And we can do it. But it's everything that goes before that, that's sort of out of our control. Um, that makes it very difficult. And that can take, that can be done within the life cycle of a plan sometimes. Sometimes it goes across two life cycles. And that can be up to a decade. So that's unfortunately what's currently out of our control. Um, and we need to see greater certainty on that. You know, you've repeated the word certainty a few times there. And in launching the Housing for All plan, um, the Taoiseach specifically said that the aim of this plan was to provide certainty or one of the aims was to provide certainty to the industry. It doesn't appear to have done that. So what do you, you know, I suppose finally, before we let you go, you know, what needs to happen to actually realise that certainty for project, um, for project owners at the moment? Uh, well, I, I wouldn't want to mislead. I, I, I think it has provided certainty in a lot of aspects, Carol. I think to, to we couldn't uh, couldn't credibly I couldn't credibly come on and say we've got four billion in funding per year for the next five years and say that that hasn't been a massive boost and that doesn't provide a huge amount of certainty. And I think you will see an additionality on the back of that straight away. And I think there that's that extra five to six thousand units per year on top of what the natural trajectory of delivery that we were going to see was. So there is huge certainty created as a result of that. Um, but we need to see the legislation come into play, place the positive legislation around planning and planning reform to allow you know, the, the maximum delivery that we can see and the max, maximum efficiency that we can see and the potential from housing for all. And to my mind, there's still that level of uncertainty because I'm, I'm we're monitoring the county development plans and we're seeing it, and I can name, you know, we're looking at Mead and we're looking at Fingal, Dunleary, Tipperary, Wexford. These are all county plans that are at a very advanced stage. And we are seeing in each of those areas that there is the zone. And now, will that constrain delivery? At currently, as a stand, it would appear so. The, the, the challenge has been, we've seen various levels of information come forward over the last number of years. And that's through no one's fault. Um, whether it be flexibility around densities, change in population, change in migration figures, you know, proper land assessment, prioritization of lands, all things that need to be looked at, a change in dem demographic, a, a change in need from people, you know, from they're all changes that have come about in the last 12 to 24 months. The plan needs the, the, the national policy on where we build and what we build needs to reflect that. And I think there needs to be time for alignment. So rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater and dezoning, let's defer these dezonings until we see proper land assessment. And if at the, after that proper assessment, you know, that land shouldn't be there and in place and it's not capable of delivering, by all means, it shouldn't be in place. But if it is capable of delivering, let's not remove that at the expense of lands that will be zoned but will never be built on. I think from our own perspective, home builders just purely want to build homes. It doesn't get much more complicated than that. If we can build homes at a good replacement value with the margins that we necessarily need to achieve to satisfy the funders, that's what we'll do. But this will go back to the raw material. But the government have played their part, I believe, and the minister has, you know, put, you know, he's put, put it there in front of us in publication of, of housing for all. And that is to be welcome and embraced. And there's good opportunity as a result of that. But again, we need to get everyone behind this now, all the stakeholders, all those involved. And I think if I 
I think that sense of urgency that comes from the private industry, if we could see that at all level, at all stakeholders, all prescribed bodies, um, I think we could go a long way to achieving that plan. Okay, James, it's always good to end uh, on some bit of a positive note. And the issue of rezoning is definitely something we'll be returning to as it has broader implications um, for placemaking and for consumers. Um, But thank you for joining us this week. That was James Benson of the Construction Industry Federation and Irish Home Builders Association. We'll be back after a quick break. 93.9 Dublin South FM. And welcome back to Property Matters on Dublin South FM with Brian Fox and myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on Twitter at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. So I'm delighted to be joined by Richard Henschel, CEO of Recognite. Um, Richard, you're very welcome to the show, Recognite. I love the name. Tell us about the company. Carol, thank you for having us. Look, Recognite is a software as a service company that specializes in applying data science and artificial intelligence tools to commercial real estate investment and management. You know, you can really think of us as a real estate analytics platform that's combined with workflow and virtual data room tools to really provide insightful data to real estate industry players. Okay. And, you know, um, there's a growing recognition of the, um, not just the importance of data and how we manage it, but also the value of it. Because obviously, um, under European legislation in terms of GDPR, data was definitely seen as more of a liability than an asset. And, And a lot of companies in the real estate space, they weren't capitalizing on it as an asset. So um, I understand that Recognite is the, the it, um, it is building on the success of a previous company. So can you talk to me about, you know, what rather than just data, talk to me about the types of data and the types of insights that your users can expect? Yeah, so the real estate industry has been pretty slow to grasp the value in data um, and historically and I've you know I've worked a lot across a lot of major investment classes foreign exchange equities capital markets and real estate and real estate has always been the least transparent market it's the market where there's the widest spreads in terms of you know bid and offer and it's always been behind the time it's been a bit of a you know an old boys club to put it bluntly Um, That's changing. There's increasing sources of digital information. There's an increasing recognition, I think, within the industry that information is valuable, that having the right information and particularly having up-to-date and current information can help you make better investment decisions and therefore realise more value in your real estate. So I think that's really the real estate industry catching up with where other markets have been for a while. Okay, and can you break down the types of information? You know, are we talking about information that um, across a portfolio or say on a building uh, building specific, are you getting into building usage? No, so at the moment, we're very focused on um, investors and financiers who have very large portfolio of assets. So it's making sure that they have all the right current information around the properties that, you know, whether it's property title information, whether it's latest valuation reports, whether, um, and we can take information in a variety of different formats. So we can, using our natural language processing, we can read PDF documents and extract out the important information from those documents. 
because typically what you'll find with most big industry um, players is they'll have some information in Excel spreadsheets, they'll have some information in financial systems, they'll have a pile of PDFs, whether it's valuation reports, whether it's um, design and development documentation, and then they'll even have a whole stack of paper documents still sitting in file boxes out the back. So a lot of our technology was designed around being able to extract all the pertinent information from those different data sources, cross-check it to find out, to make sure that, they, that we've actually got the right data on the right asset and it hasn't been superseded by more current data, and then to enrich that data with a lot of the open source information that's now available. So, you know, we can use geolocation data such as Google Maps to actually go, right, well, we know the address of the asset is, you know, 12 Regent Place, and we can pull down from Google Maps and geolocate that. We can pull down images of the buildings from Google Street View, and um, we can enrich it with a variety of different source information. So be able to give everybody a much more current view of their portfolio information, but also just as importantly, point out to them where there are gaps in their portfolio information, where information's not current, where where information contradicts each other, um, which often happens. We we work a lot with banks on their um, secured loan portfolios, and often we'll find that there's a lot of conflicting data that they have, and so it's sorting through that data and making sure they have an accurate picture of their portfolios. Yeah, you touched on something really important there, and that is kind of the validity of the data going in, because I know um, in simple terms, we're all familiar with the adage now, rubbish in, rubbish out. So the insights you generate are only as reliable as the information that you're working with. I mean, you mentioned gaps uh, that you can highlight maybe gaps that the portfolio the portfolio might have. But the difficulty is that the ecosystem of real estate, you know, so for people doing going into planning applications or going in for uh, certain areas of compliance, um, there's a very manual approach taken when you're interacting with the state or with the regulatory bodies. So how is all of that brought together? The ecosystem hasn't kept up with the capability in any way. No, it hasn't. But but also you're finding that some countries are actually digitising quite rapidly. Um, can, so you it's, us, can you give us maybe who you're seeing? Are you working globally? We work. We are working across Europe at the moment. Okay, um, tell us who's doing it well. So it's interesting. So, for instance, the um, Cypriot Land Registry is relatively advanced, and then the Baltic states are relatively advanced, whereas there are lots of other countries countries that are still based on very paper heavy and very much free form documents. So instead of having like a form for a title document, they'll still like have a, you know, sort of traditional legal document where the information's buried in um, pages of legalese. So we've actually built our technology so that we can train, you know, it's machine learning, which is basically training your systems. It's, as I've discovered, it's very much like training a child. Um, you give them a lot of information and they learn to pick out the right pieces of information. So we can read those long-form documents, pull out the pertinent um, information in multiple languages and across multiple types of documents. Um, So you mentioned there uh, the Cypriot state and, and some of the Baltic states as being leaders 
Um, where does the UK sit? And I'm almost afraid to ask the question about Ireland because I know the answer, but say the, the UK, where is that sitting? Um, look, the UK is an interesting market. It's There's obviously some quite sophisticated players in it, so some information is good. Mm-hmm. Other information is is not. And that's, you know, that's typically what we find in most markets. There's different pockets of information. A lot's being digitised quite rapidly. Um, you know, there's lots of initiatives in the UK to do that. But there's also huge amounts of um, historical information that's typically not digitised. So um, it, it's a mixed bag and it depends a lot on what, what the information you want. And that makes sense. You know, I, I mentioned earlier in the interview that uh, Recognize is actually born out of Resolute Asset Management. Um, but I, I, what, I, what I'd like to know there is in terms of, say, dealing with the banks or financial institutions, you know, we know that they went through a huge period of turmoil, you know, going back 12, 13 years ago. Were systems digitized? Because, you know, 10, 12, uh, 13 years ago in dealing with the with fallout of the crash, we, we knew that uh, the financial institutions didn't have a good handle on what assets they were holding. You know, th- there were huge gaps there. Was that in any way rectified? So I, I and I suppose the, the question I have, you know, now in 2021, are the situations there with our financial institutions, are they more aware of what assets they hold and are they better equipped to answer questions about them? Look, definitely vastly improved. I mean, the the seed of Recognite was, um, I think, probably in 2011, 2012, with a mandate for a a large bank in Southern Europe where they had tens of thousands of bad loans secured over real estate. And frankly, they didn't really know what was secured over what. so there was an enormous exercise, which largely had to be done manually. And, you know, that all the accounting firms did very well out of this, bringing in lots of juniors to sift through documents. But what we found was even with manual um, remediation of data, accuracy rates were often 70, 75% because those, you know, young graduates get very bored after reading their 100th title document and errors start to slip in. So that's when we engaged our first data scientists, when we first started to build our first systems. And in comparable tests, we're able to achieve remediation rates in the sort of the 90% hours versus, you know, the 70% hour, which is sort of a good remediation rate for a manual process. And we were able to do it in weeks rather than in years and months that it took. Um, And that's, you know, that's before banks have started to improve their systems, which they, they have also done. But they still, the systems are definitely better, mm-hmm. but they haven't spent a lot of money on the sort of collateral management systems that you need to really know. Where, where's all my exposure? You know, as a, as a high street bank, can I actually go? I know all of, all of my exposure in Paddington. I know that, um, you know, which houses I have, I can actually look at a street map and go, okay, something's wrong. I have 80% of the new financing in Paddington. Clearly my branch manager is being too aggressive and lending to everybody. Or conversely, you know, how come I have no exposure in Paddington? That sort of data, most banks don't have the ability to do that yet. It's, it's perfectly possible. 
but it, with all the other system upgrades they've had to do with all the compliance and other systems, um, banks are struggling to get that together. Okay. And what's next for Recognize? Because, I mean, look, you've given us a great example of some of the trends or insights uh, that can be gathered from the platform. And we know that this is the type of basic information that, in fact, 20 years ago, people might have assumed bank had, banks had that knowledge or, or financial institutions or portfolio owners had that type of knowledge. And we know now that that wasn't the case, particularly as we get into larger portfolios. So what's the next step for Recognize? Look, there's a lot of exciting trends happening in data and in real estate. But one that I'm particularly excited about is the increasing focus on environmental and social factors. So actually understanding what is the environmental footprint of your portfolio, what are the environmental risks that you're running. And that's that's everything from what's the energy efficiency levels of my different buildings? How does that feed back into my investment profile? Am I actually taking that into account? And obviously with big commercial buildings, you've got the the lead system, um, which um, ranks environmental um, factors, but with a lot of, particularly if you're investing in housing or other portfolios, that sort of information is much harder to come from. In some markets, it's available and others it's not. So it's how do you weave that into your your entire picture of an asset um, so that you can form a, a good investment view. Okay. And Rich, which of course makes sense. Richard, you're you know you certainly your company is at the pioneering edge of um data and machine learning and how that's being applied to real estate. Uh, for you as an innovator, what are the challenges? What stands between what you would like to do for the industry and what you're able to do for the industry? It's always a challenge matching, um, you know, the immediate needs of your clients with where you can also see the trends going. So, you know, with any client, you need to deliver something that delivers value to them now and they still want it immediately. But obviously, you can often see that what they're doing is a short-term fix and not really the long-term solution. So, you know, we're having we're developing new systems all the time. We're improving our systems. Um, it's a constant conversation with our clients around, yes, I know that's what you think you want to do, but actually there's a whole universe of additional information, additional value that we can unlock for you but we have to change our client's mindset to actually see that that adds value. Um, and that that's happening, but it, it's always a slow process. You know, it's interesting. It really doesn't matter what the technology it is we're discussing. It always comes back to mindset before we round out the conversation. Thank you, Richard. That was Richard Henschel, CEO of PropTech Recognite. And that's it from us this week. Uh, thank you for listening into Property Matters on Dublin South FM. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iPropertyRadio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. We're back at the same time next week. From Brian Fox and myself, Carol Tallon, stay safe.